Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, though, uh, we're so very happy to have Ozerine van der Fleet Alumi here. Um, I'll read you uh, her bio. She is the author of the novel Fra Keeler and an assistant professor in the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Notre Dame. She is the winner of the 2015 Whiting Writers Award, National Book Foundation 5 Under 5 honoree, and the recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship, as well as residency fellowships from McDowell and Lettick House. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Guernica, Granta, Baum, and elsewhere. She has lived in New York, Los Angeles, Tehran, Dubai, Valencia, and Barcelona, and currently splits her time between South Bend, Indiana, and Florence, Italy. We're so very, very happy to have her here because she's just beginning the leg of her tour, so she's still fresh. <laughs> so please welcome Azarine. <laughs> Hello, thank you for coming. Um, so I'm going to read from a couple different sections in the novel. It moves between um, sort of the prologue that starts off in Iran and Turkey when the narrator is really young and has set off on foot with her father um, into exile. And then I'll be moving forward about 22 years to New York City and read a brief excerpt from that section. And then I'll skip ahead quite a bit um, to a section that takes place in Girona once the narrator, who's decided after her father's death to retrace the path of her exile, um, to, to return to Catalonia and um, just sort of immerse herself in that space and read Catalan writers. And she falls in love with this uh, Italian expat philologist named Ludo Bembo. So it's a little bit about their um, back and forth with each other as well. Illiterates, abecedarians, elitists, rodents all. I will tell you this. I, zebra, born Bibi Abbas Abbas Hosseini, on a scorching August day in 1982, am a descendant of a long line of self-taught men who repeatedly abandoned their capital, Tehran, where blood has been washed with blood for a hundred years, to take refuge in Noshar in the languid, damp regions of Mazanderan. There, hemmed in by the rugged green, green slopes of the Elbors Mountains, and surrounded by ample fields of rice, cotton, and tea, my forebears pursued the life of the mind. There, too, I was born and lived the early part of my life. My father, Abbas Abbas Hosseini, multilingual translator of great and small works of literature, man with a thick mustache fashioned after Nietzsche's, was in charge of my education. He taught me Spanish, Italian, Catalan, Hebrew, Turkish, Arabic, English, Farsi, French, German. I was taught to know the languages of the oppressed and the oppressors because, according to my father, and to my father's father, and to his father before that, the wheels of history are always turning, and there's no knowing who will be run over next. 
I picked up languages the way some people pick up viruses. I was armed with literature. As a family, we possess a great deal of intelligence, a kind of super intellect, but we came into this world one after the other during the era when Nietzsche famously said that God is dead. We believe that death is the reason why we have been so terribly shortchanged when it comes to luck. We are ill-fated, destined to wander in perpetual exile across a world hostile to our intelligence. In fact, possessing an agile intellect with literary overtones has only served to worsen our fate. But it is what we know and have. We are convinced that ink runs through our veins instead of blood. My father was educated by three generations of self-taught philosophers, poets, and painters. His father, Dalir Abbas Hosseini. His grandfather, Arman Abbas Hosseini. His great-grandfather, Shams Abbas Hosseini. Our family emblem, inspired by Sumerian seals of bygone days, consists of a clay cylinder engraved with three A's framed within a circle. The A's stand for our most treasured roles, listed here in the order of importance. Autodidacts, anarchists, atheists. The following motto is engraved underneath the cylinder. In this false world, we guard our lives with our deaths. The motto also appears at the bottom of a still life painting of a mallard hung from a noose, completed by my great-great-grandfather in the aftermath of Iran's failed constitutional revolution at the turn of the 20th century. Upon finishing the painting, he pointed at it with his cane, nearly bludgeoning the mallard's face with its tip, and his voice simultaneously crackling with disillusionment and fuming with rage famously declared to his son, my great-grandfather, death is coming, but we literati will remain as succulent as this wild duck. This seemingly futile moment marked the beginning of our long journey toward nothingness into the craggy pits of this measly universe. Generation after generation, our bodies have been coated with the dust of death, our hearts have been extinguished, our lives leveled. We are weary, thin as rakes, hacked into pieces. But we believe our duty is to persevere against a world hell-bent on eliminating the few who dare to sprout in the collective manure of degenerate humans. That's where I come into the picture. I, astonished and amazed at the magnitude of the darkness that surrounds us, am the last in a long line of valiant thinkers. After leaving Van, my father, Abbas Abbas Hosseini, and I spent years moving across the surface of the earth in search of a place to think. We were like slugs that come out after a hard rain, ugly, weather-beaten, dispossessed, the refuse of the world. So it goes. No matter how many times you try to replant an uprooted tree, it seems always to take, fail to take to the soil. The exile never outruns history. Such are the consequences of being born unlucky in an inhospitable world. There's a line by Baudelaire that sums it up rather well. Il me semble que je serai toujours bien là où je ne suis pas. I encountered that same line written in the words of Paul Auster after we'd settled in the wretched new world. 
It seems to me that I will always be happy in the place I am not. It seemed just as prophetic then. By the time we did reach that so-called new world, many years had passed since my mother's death, since our harrowing fugue from Iran, an egress that had chilled our bones and left our hands permanently cold. From that point on, I had maintained the temperature of a corpse. Under the specter of grief, we moved through Turkey, and after a series of digressions designed to renew or falsify this or that paper, we arrived in Barcelona, our destination, the city of bombs. There, my father hoped to meet other autodidacts, anarchists, atheists, but events never unfold the way one imagines they will. Barcelona, cautious, worn down by the years of oppression it was subjected to by the childish whims of General Franco, that wide-eyed despot, ultimately disappointed him, and soon we were on the road again. At times, during our long journey, we seemed to make progress in leaps and bounds. We would move across huge chunks of this uneven universe at the speed of light, then suddenly, breathless and exhausted, we'd be unable to proceed and would move backward again. The path we'd taken would unfold over itself, looping backward as if it were leading us toward some information we had been too impatient to discover the first time. We would scurry back in a panic, only to discover that there was nothing there. This sense that we had forgotten something, the haunting after-effect of an indigestible loss, had turned both of us into entirely unintelligible beings. I don't know how long we stayed in each place. I drifted in and out of the light. I was often lost to myself. And even when I wasn't, I had no idea how it was we had come to be wherever it was we were. I still don't know. All I know is that when we finally arrived in Barcelona, I was two years older than when we had first left Iran. Three years later, we were in New York City, hopeless, disoriented, famished. More than a decade had gone by somehow. Now, 22, I still burn with rage, grief, and confusion at the arduous path of my past. I stood with my back to the cloisters and looked out over the Hudson. The Cusha, the Bonfort, the St. Guilliam, and the tree were behind me, all having been clinically sliced from medieval French abbeys and rearranged here into an artificial hole. The Hudson was below me, green, serpentine, slithering lazily by. I sat down on a bench to take in the commanding view. The fog climbed up the sides of Fort Trine Park, suspended over the water, caught in the gauzy winter light. The George Washington Bridge looked like a giant mosquito net. It was a dreary, damp day. My father was in our Inwood apartment, lying supine on his mattress, approaching death. Soon I would have to bury him, just as I had buried my mother. I would have to lower his body into the ground. I would have no one left to love. Sitting on that bench, watching the fog rise over the river, I thought to myself, years have passed since we left Iran. I sat there and yearned for the most banal things. Figs, pomegranate trees, hydrangeas, date palms, birds of paradise. Then I thought, enough. There's no point in pining over a country with a thousand heads, a country that is always changing, that had become unrecognizable to us. I got off the bench and walked up to the railing that runs along the perimeter of the park. I leaned over the edge. 
I could hear the river down below, swoosh, swoosh, swoosh. The moving water made the same sound the sentences written by my ingenious forebears made as they swirled around the infinite abyss of my mind. I could no longer see out. The fog was covering everything. Instead, I looked inside myself. I saw acres of consciousness decimated by the lacunae of exile. I felt indignant, downtrodden, lost. I considered leaping into the river. I didn't want to survive my father's death. Then I thought, no, I am truculent, combative, as good as any other human at kicking around the dust piled up on this miserable earth. And if I were to kill myself off, why should I do it here? I looked around. I said, never. If I'm going to die, I thought, let it be among estranged brethren. As forlorn as I was, I would never leap off the edge of this new world, this land of thieves, with my back to a conglomeration of fake cloisters that have been dismantled from real French abbeys and reassembled here. As if the old world were a mausoleum. What a laughable lack of perspective. That fateful day finally arrived. In April, while the cherry trees were blossoming and the sky was a cloudless blue, my father died. His heart stopped. I came home from my weekly meeting with Morales and found my father sitting in his lazy boy, dead, his cane resting across his lap, his mouth open, his tongue sunk back, his mustache flat and lifeless. I felt as though my heart had been put through the shredder. I heaved and wailed, but I couldn't shed any tears. I had gone dry like that no-man's land we had traversed. My eyes stung and my gut burned. I bit my lips until they bled. I gnawed on my fingers. I attacked myself the way animals do when they are in distress. Sometime later, somnambulant, comatose, I walked over to my father and caressed his face. I closed his eyes. Then I went into the kitchen and poured some tea. I didn't know what to do with myself. There was a small radio balanced on the windowsill that led out to the fire escape. I had never turned it on, but I did then. There is a first time for everything, after all. I leaned against the sink and listened to the voice come through. It said, the long siege. We were right in the middle of the reckless chaos of the bush years. I retreated from the kitchen and again looked at my dead father. There was a white hue to his skin. I couldn't stand to see him that way. I looked around. There was a notebook I hadn't noticed before on the dinner table. My father had left me a present, a leather-bound notebook with a note on it that said, Ill-fated child, last of the Hosseinis, add to the history's pile of ruins the uselessness of our suffering. I grabbed the notebook and went back into the kitchen. I leaned against the sink. I opened the tap. I watched the water run down the drain. I looked out the window, the new world. There it was, shamelessly conducting its business while halfway around the globe, whole towns, cities, and villages were being raised to the ground. And I thought, what does that word, new, mean anyway? I had never seen anything new in my life. All I had seen was the anxiety of people wanting to say something new, the new poets, the new world. I examined the word. 
I filled a glass and took a drink of water. I turned off the tap. New. I turned the ward over on my tongue. New. I laughed. I laughed with repulsion, with hatred. The sky changed colors, yellow to ochre to rust. I don't know how much time went by. Soon, it was evening. In the street, the neon lights of the shops came on. Their green glare glided across the walls. I felt as if I were standing at the bottom of the sea. For a brief second, I remembered the wrinkled surface of the Mediterranean, how it shone like treated leather in the muted light of dusk. Fragments of the past were already pushing their way up to the surface in spontaneous fits and bursts. The Mediterranean, that green sea, the sea of sunken hopes, appeared like a photograph, a surface without depth. I laughed. I laughed until I had no idea what I was laughing at. I laughed until there were tears coming out of my eyes and ears. Brackish waters rose through the craggy walls of my void. It stung so hard, I thought my organs had been set on fire. Then I called 911. So then she starts to retrace her journey um, to New York City and returns to Barcelona, as I mentioned. And the book gets progressively more and more eccentric and strange. She is, the, the section I'm going to read to you is basically um, her having left Barcelona to go to Girona in pursuit of her lover who's trying to get away from her. And she's stolen this bird, this cockatoo, from a literary critic that she's been renting a house from in Barcelona because she believes that the spirit of her mother has been reincarnated inside this bird. Um, so she's, she's traveling with, with the bird whose name is Taut. By the time I arrived at Ludo's doorstep, my ears were hot with fear and rage. As I knocked on his door, I thought to myself, what if he refuses my company? What if he invites me in? My thoughts spun and stretched. I knocked again, but no one came to the door. I was temporarily thwarted. I was forced to spend the night on a bench in the mud outside Ludo Bembo's apartment. The bench was affixed to a dirt-covered overlook planted with a few young plane trees. It offered an astounding view of the foothills. The Pyrenees possessed an unnatural gleam. The range's dense black form, composed of deep grooves and ridges and moss-encrusted rocks, was shrouded in a fine layer of mist, vapor that appeared to have been backlit. I sat there with Taut and stared into the distance until the curtains of night were drawn. The sky turned purple before it turned black. What is the nature of my predicament? I asked Taut. I am from nowhere. Homeless, adrift, bewildered, crippled with endless estrangement. Taut nodded along in agreement with the calm patience of a man who has been locked up his whole life. He was weary from traveling, and his exhaustion had transformed him into a polite and cooperative being. What does that make me? I asked. He shrugged his wings as if to say, how should I know? Just then, I heard a breathless voice yell, like the clear-eyed Edward Said, you're a specular border intellectual. It was my father's muffled voice coming from deep inside my void. I barely recognized him. I swooned over Said's name. It warmed my inky blood. It was true. As usual, my father's assessments were spot on. 
Though mutilated by my perpetual exile, I was at home in my homelessness. I refused to blend the unreconciled veins of nationhood running through my body. I refused to produce a singular whole self, free of gaps and fissures, a being that poses less of a problem to the rest of the world. Instead, I will continue to inhabit a liminal space between worlds, a position that affords me a vantage point from which to envision new formations of thought, to live beyond the frontiers of ordinary experience. I was soon on my legs, standing before Ludobembo's home. The door had a hand-shaped knocker. I stared at that sick hand. It had a prophetic aura about it. It was moss green and freckled with rust, as if blood had been sprayed across it. I looked down at my hands. My fingers were hurting again, the way they'd hurt when Ludo and I had had sex, and the way they had hurt when I'd nudged my father out of his stupor upon my mother's death. I felt nauseous. I retreated to the bench and watched the violet fog roll softly over the mountainous frontier. The day's rain had kicked up the faint smell of my father's death. I leaned back into the bench and put my legs over the miniature museum. I comforted myself with the thought that Ludo Bembo would have to return home eventually. Soon, I thought, I will have to introduce myself to his friends. I found a muddied piece of old string in the dirt and tied Taoud to the bench. He had begun to strain my shoulder. I walked over to the young plane trees which had barely taken root in their terracotta planters and introduced myself to them as if they were Ludo's roommates, Agatha, Fernando, and Bernadette. Hello, I said to the first tree, shaking a handful of thin and supple branches. I am a non-Western encroaching on the territories of the West. I stepped back to reflect, a non-Western encroaching on the territories of the West. The phrase fell short of what I'd wanted to say. It was an approximate unit of thought, incomplete, reductive, uncomplicated. It didn't account for the fact that the West had aggressed upon me while I was still in the East, and that this invasion, the cultural assassination imposed upon me by the West, had forced an agonizing and psychologically maimed version of me to cross over into the West and contaminate its territories with the very distortions it had caused but now refused to acknowledge. That, on top of everything else, the West was gaslighting me. That's right. I had been gaslighted by the imperial powers of the world. But much like the new world, this tree was too young to understand. It said nothing in return. I gave it a little kick and moved on. Taut, whose fate was no better than a hostage's, expressed his delight by hopping up and down on the rim of the bench as far as the string permitted. Hello, I said, petting the soft foliage of the second tree. I, zebra, am recrossing borders I've already crossed in order to map the literature of the void and prove once and for all that any thought worth preserving in our pitiable human record was manifested in the mind of an exile, an immigrant, a refugee. My mind and my mouth had aligned themselves to perfection. Persons fleeing from persecution, I said, homeless beings, the tree bowed. At the center of the archive of Western thought, I continued, encouraged by the tree's grace, is the pain of those who have suffered at the hands of the xenophobic and militant fascists of the West and their puppets in the East. I looked at the tree. It was sulking empathically. 
The tips of its branches were pointing despairingly at the ground. Spain, of course, is no different, I informed the doting tree. Spain is the original culprit. It is singularly responsible for the establishment of the so-called new world, for the invention of the West. The Spanish of yore were expert annihilators and inquisitors, all of them. Just then the moon emerged, and with it a soft Sephardic tune of loss and longing rose from the Museum of Jewish History, which was directly downhill of us. The church bells at the Cathedral of St. Mary of Girona chimed in. Why would the Catalans, who wish so to distance themselves from Spain, want to claim Christopher Columbus as one of their own? Why would they have erected a statue in his honor at the port of Barcelona? The ego, I said, resuming my lecture. The ego. It renders all of us incoherent. The tree bowed again. I had never encountered a more deferential tree, a tree with more moral integrity. It was dignified, wise beyond its age, destined to take its place in the highest ranks of the intelligentsia. I decided not to bother with the third tree. For once, I thought, why not end the night on a good note? I spotted a rock in the moonlight. I picked it up. It made for a great pillow. I lay down on the bench. Taut settled between my legs. We slept badly, but we slept. And I'll stop there. So there's Q&A. Yeah, I'm happy to take questions if anybody has any. We, yeah. Yeah. You want to both be in the tradition of their thought, but also be kind of right, immersed in fiction. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really part of what made the book so difficult to write is that um, it's looking at all of these philosophical threads and using them to kind of help the narrator propel herself across the space, right? And, and in a sense, part of her excess and her intellectual meditations and ruminations is what keeps her alive. It's what allows her to survive, right? And, and I think that it's, it really took a long time to balance that kind of, um, you know, I guess she's been referred to as a motor mouth, you know, that kind of thinking with uh, her kind of very charming and odd sense of humor and her kind of sexual erotic desire for Ludo that also acts as another thread that pulls us across this narrative. So it's, it's kind of a, a lot to balance and it took seven years to write the book and the majority of that time was spent reading and trying to actually find exactly what the tenor of her voice was because she does shift between this kind of, you know, manifesto-like monologue and these interactions with people in her space that, yeah. I was reading everything from the great journey narratives, Don Quixote, um, Dante's The Divine Comedy, the, you know, The Odyssey, those were all big inspirations, and then looking at Nietzsche quite a bit, Salvador Dali. I read most of um, sort of late 20th century uh, 
post-World War II Catalan writers while I was in Catalonia, so Mercero Loreda, Josep Pla. And yeah, I just, you know, read a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that... What's that? Oh, sorry, I just muttered. I said, oh, you're the protagonist. Yeah, so, so I think that her manifesto is sort of this place that she also allows her to kind of stay alive in this space of hopelessness right after her father's passed away. And it's a way of um, kind of perpetuating his legacy and the legacy of this family of, um, you know, strange autodidacts and atheists and anarchists. And she's trying to thread together all of the literature that she's been immersed in as a way of coming up with this kind of what she refers to as a philosophy of totality, which of course is an impossible inventory or database, right? Um, but it's in that gesture that where she's reading these books and finding threads, you know, where, for example, Primo Levi and Walter Benjamin are, um, maybe their work is speaking to one another across time and space. Uh, she, she sort of is able to, to look at literature as this, you know, constellation where there's a lot of difference, but there isn't coercion in a sense, right? And, and it's within that space that she can really uh, find her voice and her own way of imposing her her narrative back on to the world because you know most of her life the world is imposing its narrative onto her body so it's kind of a way for her to, to become embodied through literature as well yeah. I started thinking about the book in 2010. So I did uh, these literary pilgrimages while I was in Catalonia, where when I was reading these Catalan writers of exile, I started actually using their books as maps and sort of navigating the landscape without using any technology and looking at all the old roads and trying to remap the landscape that they had described. And it, in that process, I think I really discovered what becomes the central thread of the book where she finds her tribe and she goes on these pilgrimages with the pilgrims of the void and they're all, you know, really sort of awkward and strange bumbling humans in their own ways. And and so that started, yeah, in 2010 and I just kind of continued working on it really until the last draft was, you know, in August. Um, and it takes, yeah, it takes a long time. I'm, I'm a slow and meticulous and really sentence-driven. So the last two and a half years, I was glued to my desk and writing pretty much eight hours a day and taking very little breaks. So it was a bit excruciating. <laughs> but yeah, I tend to be pretty disciplined as a writer in terms of showing up. No, thank you for coming. Yeah. The books are similar in the sense that they're kind of both grappling with um, 
interiority and how to map consciousness onto the page, right? So infrocular, for those of you who don't know, it's just sort of a, a monologue. It almost feels like the character is more of a voice, you know, coming through the page from elsewhere and is stuck in a, in a room or on a street for most of it. And this is sort of epic in scale where, you know, she's kind of traveling all over. Um, so it has that same quality, I think, but one of the things that was really interesting for me was reading also the realist writers that I really admire, like Henry James and Gustave Flaubert, and thinking about how to make, you know, the, the sort of unreal quality of realism pull it out into the foreground, right? Because it's so artificial, you know? We have this idea that realism is just, like, uh, realism, right? And and I was sort of really interested in demythologizing de that for myself as a writer and the process of sort of how do you describe a landscape in a way that's totally visceral and really concrete and grounded and at the same time have this kind of speculative mind or psychologic, you know, psychologically driven character pushing back against that space so much that there is this unreality at the fringes, right? So it's sort of that tension. And it took a long time, you know, I had to read things that I, and uh, study more than read and retrain my brain in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was, it was a fun, fun thing to do. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.